Salam alaikum Anusha. Wa alaikum salam. Lovely, lovely to have you on. Um, it's been like a long time coming. I think we've been trying to arrange this podcast for probably like a year now or something. Probably, yeah. 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 I just moved into this flat and you called me up and that been here now a year so. <laughs> it's been good. No, I mean, it's um, we've obviously spoken before um, and, and done kind of some work in the past together. Um, yeah. I have to say your, your story is perhaps one of, if not the most inspirational stories um, for someone who in such a short span of time has accomplished so many things. Um, and being obviously someone who's who's raised in in our like kind of Muslim community in the West, and also have gone on has gone on to achieve incredible things despite many things holding you back. Um, it's it's maybe a learning lesson, but obviously I, I don't really want to spoil it and talk big. And before <laughs> before we get into it, um, before we get started, I just wanted to maybe elaborate or, or maybe get into a specific. Um, uh, quotes on your website and maybe oh, okay. thoughts on it. So this is uh, from the judges of the Asian Asian Women of Achievement right. Awards. So it says that Anusha is energetic, charismatic, overflowing with enthusiasm and a force for good. Anusha Hussain has overcome immense challenges of her own and yet she's determined to have a positive impact on others. Very flattering words. How would you say that summarizes you as a person and does it accurately capture who you are in your day-to-day life in the public and also as in, in your own kind of personal life? I think that's the life I try to lead. I, that's definitely the life I, I try to lead. I try and throw as much energy and love into everything that I do. Yeah. And that, inshallah, if I can bring anybody along with me for the ride so mm-hmm. that they can also succeed in their own potential, then yeah. I'm all for it. Um, because I really want to see, I really want to see, I want to leave the world in a better place than when I came. That's my, that's my thing. That's your mission. Um, that's my mission. And however little or big as way as I can, that's what I want to do. If that just means making one person smile or making a thousand people realize they have a new purpose in life, it doesn't matter. So obviously you've been born in, correct me if I'm wrong, Luxembourg, right? Yeah, that's me. So how would you how would you kind of compare, let's say, the earlier stages of your life and, and sort of lifestyle you had, the community that surrounded you, maybe some of the challenges you had, uh, and maybe where you are now if you had to look at a, a timeline of your life and compare? Oh, it's totally different. So uh, Luxembourg's a tiny country, five hundred thousand people living there. Um, not very many people who are who who are like Muslim. Not very many people. No, not very many people from Pakistan or India or sort of. You know, basically, it just you know you were a minority. I think we were like six kids in my school. Oh my god! Uh, you know, coming from like Pakistan, let alone being Shia or Sunni or whatever. I I think we were two Shias uh, at yeah. the time in my in my in my high school. Um, so, um. I, you know, in terms of like being uh, learning, there was obviously there was no imam bar for us, so we would learn at home. Uh, we'd have like yeah. somebody come and help us read Quran, and then, um, you know, we do all the sort of much lists at home on a video that we'd pre-order the videos, and they'd come in, and that's how we do it. And then you know you'd you'd hear of these famous reciters or, or people, and then you suddenly go, oh my god. And, uh, great, we can get them. Um, so we'd normally be like a year behind Stanmore, for instance, oh. <laughs> in terms of lectures. Uh, we'd normally yeah. get them the year later because um, obviously they have to record them and then they can send them to us for the next year. Yeah. Back yeah. in the day before internet. 
um, before internet was a big thing. Uh, so yeah, very different way of growing up. Um, I would say than, than what I've seen from my family here, for instance, uh, in London, um, you, by the nature of not having people from your own community around you as such, yes, you integrate as much as possible. My community in Luxembourg is like my family because there's so few of us that you learn to really, you know, lean on each other um, and, and build that level of family support. But at the same time, that meant also I was blessed to integrate with so many people who are not Muslim, who are not from my community, um, you know, through school and through various activities I was doing. Um, so, it meant that I was always, always exposed to yeah. so many different ideas. So, I mean, probably a key thing which we haven't mentioned yet is, is you were obviously born into a small community, but you were born with uh, EDS, which is, forgive me if I'm completely butchering yeah. the conversation, Ellis Danlos syndromes. Yeah. So right? probably, probably, probably as a kid, I, I didn't know I had EDS. So as a kid, um, I basically, I was born missing my right arm below the elbow. And that was the yeah. only main health issue that I had as a, you know, as a kid. And it wasn't really an issue for me because it was, I never saw my arm as a loss. It's just something different. So I normally yeah. coped quite well. Yeah. Might carry a plate differently or things like that, but I'll still get it all done. Basically. The only thing that I don't like are shoelaces for the most part, <laughs> um, literally. <laughs> so it's still a challenge today. Um, but, um, and yeah, I was a little bit of a poorly child, but that was it. I mean, uh, otherwise I was pretty active, but just as I said, in a very small community um, in which, yeah, you spend a lot of your time with people who weren't from your community. So, I mean, you were obviously raised in, in such a community and, and when you were a teenager, I believe you were already big on sports, um, yeah. martial arts, and I've read online with your... Uh, in your interview with The Independent, that you mentioned you were three months short of your black belt and just been accepted into the, the Luxembourg national team uh, when you were told that you had to, to stop all sports. How did that happen? Yeah, so basically I started off uh, by swimming and competing in swimming when I was like already six or seven and transitioned into martial arts um, and sort of began at the beginning with martial arts and a few years later, sort of towards the age of 14, 15. Yeah, it got really, really serious. I started competing nationally and took my first podium place and um, sort of asked to go on to the national team. And they said yes. Um, so it was like literally Sunday competition, Tuesday got the, got the call for a yes. Thursday I had an appointment with uh, my surgeon because um, over the last two years previous, I'd been having a lot of problems with my right shoulder. Um, it was basically dislocating. Now, at the time, we didn't know I, have, I had EDS, which you've mentioned, Ehlers-Danlos yeah. Syndrome. Uh, it's a connective tissue disorder, which means it can impact all the connective tissue between your joints and your organs. Uh, it makes them loose and stretchy. So in my case, my joints can spontaneously misalign or even dislocate and completely pop out. Um, and my shoulder had gotten into the habit of um, basically not staying in place. It didn't hurt. It just didn't stay in place. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, I still can't count how many times it comes out every day, even today, because it's too many. Um, and I don't always realize yeah. it's out. So it's kind yeah. of quite, it was quite problematic. And the surgeon simply said, look, martial arts is great, but because you do the artistic forms against the air, um, you don't have a form of resistance. It's not safe for you to do. You're going to pop something out. If you haven't done it yet, but you're going to, you need to stop. 
and you have to stop from today. And yeah, I was three months short of starting making That's my crazy. first attempt on a block belt. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably something which uh, a lot of kids or, or young people, even teenagers go through. There's, there's like this meme online where, <laughs> where people say that, oh, I was so close to getting into this football academy or something, but I got injured. Um, it seems to happen. I know, for example, when I was in school, I, I, I also I dislocated my shoulder when playing rugby and I've broken my arm before and like all sorts of stuff doing some form of for sports or activities as well. In our in in kind of the, the the northwest London communities that we have, sports is a really massive massive thing for the youth. Um, in in our local centre in Hudger and Stanmore, um, mm. the the football association, the FA, play a big part in kind of the development of of kids and and their sporting potential. If you had to maybe give a message based on your growth and your experiences as a young person and, and competing in sports while also balancing everything else in your life. Um, maybe maybe kind of your your social life and your religious life and everything else what maybe words of advice would you give to young people um, here and now if it's something that makes you happy pursue it we know that sport is so good not just for our physical health but our mental health our social health our societal health and on top of that, if it actually makes you happy, if it gives you that one smile in that day when maybe the rest of your day is not so good, go ahead and do that sport. It doesn't matter if you're competing. doesn't even matter what level you're at. Just go and do it. I think that's critical advice. Um, so let's kind of go on, on a bit of a journey. So after that happened, um, you took a bit of a break. What, what then kind of, what was the next step for you? Well, I got told to stop karate in any impact sport. What we didn't realize at the time is that actually I need really strong muscles to keep my joints in place. And so with the change in activity levels, my joints, I went from having one problematic joint to a full body of problematic joints very, very quickly. Um, by the age of 18, I was it, having my first surgery, by 20, second surgery. And I started university at this time. So I started university at 18. I went to Brussels, to Belgium to study um, a language, well, translation degree in French, English, and Chinese. Um, and I was doing sort of these surgeries in between my summer holidays. So I'd come home, have surgery, yeah. go back to uni. Um, and uh, then I went to China for six months to study because that was part of my degree, came back, finished it off, um, and had a gap year uh, at home in Luxembourg to basically recover from, one, the traveling and the constant moving, yeah. but also just generally the health that was really not doing great. And uh, that year I ended up needing back surgery as well. Uh, so I did the back surgery and then started my master's. I decided to study in Luxembourg because I had a choice to study in the UK. I had a place waiting for me there. Um, but I made the choice to study in Luxembourg partly because of what the course was like, but also partly because from a health perspective, I was genuinely worried about living on my own. I wasn't sure after the back surgery that I was really, really recovering as well as I should be. And something in me was saying, you know what? Do the degree you want to do, which genuinely was Luxembourg anyway but make the most of the fact that you can be with your parents and have a bit of a breather as well. Yeah. So I did that. And in my, at the end of my first year at university, I got diagnosed with cancer. Oh my God. Um, so, you know, it was, I mean, I'm smiling today. It was one of the worst moments in my life. I can imagine. Um, because I'd just gone, basically I was poorly healing from the back surgery. They 
gave me a scan. They found something that was meant to be benign. They took it out. It was benign. That's what they told me three weeks later. And I get a call a week later to come back to the hospital. Mm. Nobody told me that it was a, you know, I maybe should bring somebody. So I drove to the hospital on my own. Like nobody told me to bring company. So I went to the hospital on my own and I go in and I see the doctor who's just basically goes, yes, we found anomalous cells. Oh my God. And I'm like, in my head, I'm going anomalous. That means abnormal. Oh, that means not normal. Oh no, that's not good. And I went, you mean cancer? And he's like, "Mm, yes, anomalous cells. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not going to believe you until you use cancer. He goes, yes, it's cancer. I'm like, oh, darn. Okay cancer right um like in my head genuinely it was after all the surgeries and constantly trying to get my health back to normal and fighting with this body that seemed to become all loose and stuff um i i did question whether i you know i i could get back from this rock bottom i did question whether i had the resilience in myself to do yes another not just yet another surgery but chemotherapy radiotherapy and everything that was that and also keep going with my degree as well yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i'm 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 already like lost for words to be honest so you you finished your first year of university you had your your back surgery and you found that you had these anomalous cells so Um, yes i I did the back surgery in my gap here and they found the cancer the year later in my first year uni basically so did you continue with studies um did you how did you manage to put up with it all uh so i simply agreed to postpone the essays that i had due in with my my tutors but I finished all my exams because thankfully my exams are finished for that semester. Yeah. I postponed all my essays into the fourth semester, so my second year of uni. Um, started all my operations and treatment, carried on treatment into my semester. So I'd attend class every, so I'd skip class. My chemo cycle was every three weeks. So I'd basically skip a week of, um, of uni because I just wasn't well enough. Come back a week later looking like a zombie come back a week later feeling reasonably okay and then skip another week um and then did my radiotherapy finished my last session of radiotherapy on the 19th of january gave my first exam for that semester on the 20th of january would you believe the timing was horrific oh my god um it was one it was either brilliantly designed or horrific one or the other i was in no control over that timetable i had a hospital telling me one thing and teachers telling me another i was just stuck in between this very manic timetable and then my first job um, which i was doing as part of my placement for uni started on the first of march i barely had six weeks between finishing radiotherapy to picking up my first full-time job uh i wasn't recovered i mean my eyebrows hadn't even grown back so my life is wearing back. So had uh, at what? Uh, it's such a stressful period for you at that time, with obviously the pressure of work, the pressure of university, or the forthcoming pressure of work. But more, maybe overshadowing that is, of course, in the back of your mind or even the front of your mind, the the ongoing concern about your health. Um, what role really did your your family play, if you don't mind me asking? How did they react initially to it? Um, ma- massive role, all of my family. Um, my brother, um, at the time, was he living? Yeah, he was living in the UK. He'd moved to the UK to study and then stayed on. Um, so he was, he was kind of not really living at home on a regular basis. Um, I think everybody was just 
was just really um, behind me to just get me through the appointments, get me through. There were so many appointments. Um, it wasn't even, it's almost, you almost forget about the whole, I, you, you almost forget how stressful it is because it's so stressful that you, you're just in it. You have to just get through it. That's, that's what I think cancer treatment is all about. It's not even about, you, you don't have time to worry about it. You just have to get through your appointments, your treatment of feeling awful, um, you know, of, of, you know, mom trying to give you foods that you might eat, of, you know, dad yeah. taking you to the shop to the smelliest part of the cheese counter, because that's the only thing that smells normal. Um, but he would still drive me, even though he could barely stand in the cheese counter. He, he, he'd, he'd let me stand there for as long as I needed because cheese, smelly cheese, at least smelt like smelly cheese. It was lovely. <laughs> so what other, other foods didn't smell normal? Or? Yeah, I had this ridiculous, weird taste um, in my nose yeah. and my mouth. So, oh my so many foods that I used to like became lamb. Um, really? Yes, I'd had lamb literally uh, two hours after I started my first chemo cycle. So I didn't know what to expect because it was literally the first one. And I'd had my mom had maybe lamb and pasta um, and then took me out to the shops because she was like, you're going to get tired in the next. We got warned I was going to get tired by about six hours after my first session. And then that was it for three days. That was kind of the warning. It's mm. kind of called like a sundown and the yeah. sun just doesn't come back up. And so I got the warning. So we went to the shops because she's like, let's just go out. Let's have a little walk. Anything you fancy to yours, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, to feel nice, retail therapy. And I came home and we left the plate um, of the sort of pasta and lamb that was finished, but left the empty plate in the lounge. I couldn't walk into the house. Wow. She had to move the plate all the way to the kitchen and close the door and open the windows of the lounge so that I could walk into the, into the house. Oh my I gosh. was like, that my sense of smell had completely changed within three hours. Um, yeah. So at that point, you know, I couldn't eat in the kitchen anymore. I couldn't eat my parents in the same room mm-hmm. um, for, you know, the next few months. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of tolerance that they had to not only be not just tolerance, but patience and love because they had to deal with, you know, their kid basically being very, very unwell and also obviously being quite needy in terms Mm -hmm. of the things I needed, you know. So kind of, kind of um, taking a bit of a a segue here, if if we can, into maybe your your own personal life. Around that time, if I'm not mistaken, was a time you chose to wear the hijab yeah i started just the year before in fact it's 10 years to today and it's about nine years to the day that i did i started cancer treatment so yeah i i'd actually been in the uk ahead of my masters deciding on the place whether i wanted to go um whether i wanted to do it in the uk or whether i wanted to do it in luxembourg yeah and i timed my visit to get the 40th after Muharram at stanmore And the reason was because um, I really wanted to absorb the atmosphere that I never got to get in in Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a way for me to get some of that. Um, We had done Ziyareth not recently before. We'd been to Syria, to Iraq, to Iran. I loved the atmosphere. I just wanted to get a bit more of that. I was missing that. And I thought, at least at Stanmore, I'll get some of that. Oh well, um, you know, some some to, yeah, some may agree and some may not. But yeah, it's it's compared can, to Luxembourg. Trust me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> count your blessings. Spoiled. Yeah, having yeah, been count born your blessings. Out. No, alhamdulillah, exactly. I, I I could not agree um, more. It's 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 definitely a blessing. Um, but I mean, um, it's it's sorry to kind of interrupt. But I mean, it's 
it seems like a big decision, surely. I mean, going from such a conservative Catholic country in, in a small community where you maybe don't have many friends um, who, who look no. like you and, and wear hijab, <laughs> and then also being no. in the sports world <laughs> and then considering to wear hijab, was it a barrier? Maybe considering. Um, so I'd actually basically said to my friends the year before, my, my European, like really good friends of mine who are still friends today, basically told them um, the French de- the debates in France had started around the hijab and wearing religious symbols in the public space. And I, rem- I was really impacted by that because even though at the time I wasn't wearing a hijab, I didn't like the fact that women could not choose. For me, I, I admired at the time women who wore, and I understood why women didn't because at the time I was one of those women. Mm-hmm. But I also was like, at the end of the day, while it is just like fasting, just like praying, hijab is obligatory, but it's still the choice of the person to do it in that sense. Sure. Like fasting, like praying. It's all obligatory for us to do, right? But we must choose to do so. It comes down to ourselves, to, yeah. It comes down to free will at the end of the day for us to make decisions. And for me, I felt like the French government wasn't really allowing women to make that free choice anymore. And I was, for me, that's an injustice, that's oppression. Um, And so I was feeling really like annoyed about it. And, and I told my friends, like I, I, but I understood why I was never going to wear it because in Luxembourg, I was afraid I would never find a job or things like that. So um, but the thing is, it was Mahoram. I'd listened to this incredibly good lecture by Sayyid Amar on hijab. It kind of stirred something inside me and started making me reconsider whether I had made the right decision or not. Still really wasn't sure. Gone to London, attended the 40th. And when I went home to my aunt's place um, that evening, I had my scarf on because I, was at, I had been at the mosque that evening. Mm-hmm. And my, um, I realized I was the only non non in the room because I was the only non-relative to the male relatives in the yeah. in the house. Yeah. So I said, "Well, out of respect to them, I'm just going to keep my hijab on for the evening." Four hours later, I was still comfortable. So my <laughs> preconceptions over hijab were: I was going to be uncomfortable. I wouldn't be able to do sport. And what do I do about covering my right side? The main three questions. Um. Now, the whole discomfort thing was thrown out of the window because I'd kept it on for four hours and forgot about it. So I was like, well, that, I can't use that in its excuse anymore. <laughs> Literally, can't. Um, the sport thing, I simply asked my cousin, and I said, look, can I go swim? She said, yeah. of course you can. And then I went, well, what do I do about my right arm? And she goes, well, you use your arm, your elbow as your hand, so you only need to cover up until there. Mm-hmm. Went, that's a oh, smart that's point. so logical. And I said, can I, can I try wear it tomorrow for like maybe, maybe 10 minutes outside the house, maybe while I'm doing the open days in London? Is that, is that okay? And if I don't feel comfortable, I'll take it off. And she goes, of course. So the next day I tried. I wore it for 10 minutes and I had a quick conversation with God and I went, look, I'm, I'm giving it a shot. You better make it easy because you know I'm not going to really go for much. <laughs> That's it. You make it easy for me. We're going yeah. for it. Alhamdulillah. All the white people at the open day were showing me where the namaz room was. I was like, oh, really? okay. Um, I went to go see my, my brother in Cambridge. And, you know, he didn't even want to tell me how proud he was of me because he was afraid it might put me off. So he told my sister in order to tell me how proud he was of me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and then, obviously, I had to do the whole flight and the airport home to Luxembourg. And I was like, oh, God, you know, if I get stopped in the airport, that's it. I'm done. For the first time in years, I didn't get stopped at the airport. Yeah. And I said, oh, God, I've got to go to Luxembourg. What happens? You know, people are going to meet me. They're going to stare at me. 
And do you know what? Nobody did. Like, even if they did, I think for me, people always used to stare at me anyway, because if I'm wearing short sleeves, then they stare at me because of my arm. So I'm kind of used to people staring, which meant them staring because of a scarf or a scarf. It's no real difference for me. Do you feel, did you feel like maybe it didn't add anything in terms of the hesitation after you started wearing it because you felt like, you know, as it was already, people may, may, like you said, may look at you already and, and, and the hijab really was, is not a reason to hold you back. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say there was some judgment associated to hijab that I definitely didn't get with regards to my arm. Okay. Um, so people wondered whether I'd become an extremist. Um, really? And there were some very frank conversations that had to happen and me telling people to, to frankly be quiet um, about mm. that. Um, and also for them to realize that I'd made the decision based, it was such a personal decision that even my, my best friends at the time, even my parents, they had no idea that I'd been debating. In fact, I only told my parents I started about 10 minutes after I started on when I went off for that open day. I, I hadn't planned on this. Yeah. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't prepared my wardrobe. I had done nothing because it was such a spontaneous decision. Um, but I am that type of decision maker. I'll agonize and agonize over a big decision. But then once I've made it, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just go for it, uh, which is what I did. And Alhamdulillah, like, as I said, the airports have been pretty decent. Allah has this, this way of doing things where everything seems to work out. And it's a lot of the time it's a case where we, like you said, we'll agonize about a certain issue and, we'll just find a way. And it's, it's, it's maybe something which you've seen a lot throughout your life, I'm sure, with different instances and different hardships which you've faced. Um, kind of moving forward a bit, you then got into, which really I think is your, your forte and, and maybe what you're known best for, into the world of paraclimbing. So for those maybe who don't know what that is, what it means, um, is it like rock climbing? Why is it called paraclimbing? Could you give us a bit of a layman's basic explanation before yeah. you tell me about it? So I'm a climber, uh, but I'm also a paraclimber, and that means a disabled climber. So I climb on walls, but I also climb outside. And in indoor climbing in the UK, um, mm. you, well, in fact, around the world, there are lots of countries now doing this, you can have uh, both able-bodied and disabled competitive climbing regional and national level and even international level. So I um, started climbing just after cancer as a way to rehabilitate my body. Um, After struggling to find a good sport, my friend suggested it. I tried, loved it, never thought about taking it up properly. I would only do it every few months with her. Moved to London, really missed it. Took it up two years later, so about four years ago, Mm -hmm. and really decided to do it with a friend of mine who we both, we're very new to climbing. We just decided it for it to be our social outlet. Not, nothing more than that. Yeah. I heard about the national competitions in the UK um, around that time and picked up a coach about three months later. And the reason I picked up a coach was, I said, well, I was like, buddy, we haven't trained in about 12 years, frankly, not since karate time. Um, there's been a lot that's happened in 12 years, including cancer. Um, body is very different now. But I'm really curious. I was really curious at the time as to whether I could train again. I wanted to see training gave me so much when I was a teenager. That focus, that zone, it's active meditation, that release from life. Um, It was a release from stress, a release from pressure. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's a very, very different type of pressure that I wanted to see if I could find that again through climbing training instead. And I did. So that's what makes me keep training. Online, online, there's, there's a, a quote from yourself saying, the minute my hands touch a wall, my anxiety goes away. Um, and you'll say something like, I've got cancer scans coming up and scanxiety is a total. I hope I've, <laughs> I've pronounced that right. Uh, scanxiety is a total thing. Every year you hear your friends have died, you get really terrified. But I know I'm climbing that afternoon. So I'll be using it as an outlet to release that fear. Would you say in some way that climbing was your, like you said, your release? And, and would you recommend that, even if it's not climbing or sport, but some form of of, of go-to release for someone who's going through anxiety or, or, or any sort of issues? I would recommend sports or any form of activity at any time of your life, but especially when you have anxiety. If you're doing it at any point in time in your life, then when you are anxious, it is an extra resource for you to ground yourself. If you start when you're anxious, maybe not the best idea because you're not used to it. Form the habit before you're anxious. And if you're anxious, get going. If you're always anxious, then find yourself something that, again, that makes you happy, that makes you feel relaxed. Um, even if it's something, say, like rugby, which is quite a contact sport, it might not yeah. seem relaxing to a lot of people, but some people absolutely love it. Absolutely. Um, and it doesn't have to be, yeah, I would totally recommend climbing. I think it's, it definitely seems fun. I don't think it's something I'd be any good at, uh, but I don't have never to know be good try. at it, though. Yeah. Well, the thing is, no, and I have said this in, in previous articles, you will never be good at something you are new at. Because yeah. new people are never good. We know this. So mm-hmm. why do we let newness stop us from trying something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The fear of being bad, when yeah. we know we're going to be bad, shouldn't really be a fear at all. It's just a reality. I think a lot of the time this, this maybe is, is something you can elaborate on, but the, the whole comfort zone concept is something sometimes where, where you know it, it's not really there or it's not conscious to us until we analyze what we're good at and what we like doing. I'll give you an example, for example. A lot of the times when I'm at work and I have to address a certain situation and I have that hesitation in my mind, I'll convince myself of an excuse to say, oh, I don't need to call that person, don't need to have that conversation today. It could also be in your, in your relationships, in your um, life, in the community or whatever it might be. When it comes to assessing that comfort zone and that maybe that fear of the unknown, how would you maybe convince someone who's on the brink of doing something very special but hasn't made that, that push yet? Oof. Um, I'd say have a look at why you're doing it, like what it is that's making you want to do it and what it is that is making you hesitate. And if it's something external, um, worry about worries about what somebody else might think, worries about how you might proceed um, mm-hmm. or, or things like that, then I'd really question whether that's the right reason not to be doing something. Because if it's something you truly believe in and something you want to do, then question that. But then if it's something internal, like I am scared, work out why you're scared. It's okay to be scared. Scared is normal. We're all scared. Um, And especially if you're trying something new, you're going out of your comfort zone, of course you're going to be scared. You're out of your comfort zone. It's about recognizing that and not letting that put you off. Yeah. Absolutely. So where is and only doing as much you? as you want to. Sorry. Right? You, don't, you don't have to run a mile or, or a marathon on your first day running. If your first day mm-hmm. running, do 10 seconds. You have to walk before you run. Absolutely. So when you look back at your journey on climbing and you've 
done so many amazing things, so many awards, so much publicity. I don't think maybe I, I don't think that's maybe your motivation in in sports and climbing, but the publicity's probably been a nice touch. Um, would you say it's it's been a journey that um, has given you more than just the physical freedom and the physical strength? Climbing has given me my physical freedom, uh, my physical strength, my mental freedom. Uh, it's probably the most grounding thing when my life is going completely insane. And that could just mean I have a lot of work stress, but that could also mean I'm dealing with maybe a lot of public figure requests because um, that can be quite ungrounding. It might be nice touch, but it also is quite energy demanding. Or it could just be maybe some sort of health issues going on, it's anxiety time, all of that type of thing. Climbing just... It lets me be who I choose to be. Um, the wall for me is like a mirror to my life, except it does not judge me for who I am. There's no worries about whether I've gained or I've lost weight. There's no worries about how weak or strong I might be on a given day because the wall can always, you can always choose a different route, the one that suits you on the day. There is no, I'm worry free on the wall. I don't think anymore. And that's such a beautiful analogy as well. When you think about the, the journey that you take on the wall and, and, and the options that you have on a day-to-day -day basis, I think in some ways that's representative of, of the options we have in life and the journeys and the paths we wish to take and, and, and choose. Um, where has, in terms of kind of your achievements and, and how far you've come and your maybe your ambitions in the sport as well, um, what can we look at and say, this is this is where Anusha is now and, and maybe where she wants to go? So just ahead of lockdown, I was actually working on a quite secret project. And unfortunately, I can't say what that project Ooh. is yeah. because uh, yeah. during lockdown, I've fallen quite unfortunately, quite unwell. And at the moment, I can't actually walk without crutches. Oh so gosh. I've gone from being able to climb quite a lot because I was literally prepping just before lockdown um, and before the whole pandemic hit to now, um, yeah, I can't do more than, say, 10 minutes 10 minutes walking without crutches at the moment so uh and without quite a lot of knee supports so i mm -hmm. am going to be spending the next six months once everything opens up again inshallah just trying to build that back slowly and very much so trying to be very patient with myself yeah. and trying to stay positive in what is quite a difficult time health-wise um then the plan is to retrain for that special project and um, if I get it, I'm I get very it. Much looking forward to it. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Um, and yeah, the plan is also to return. I they haven't confirmed whether the competitions this year are going to go ahead. The ones in September, but realistically, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna. There's no point me trying physically. I won't be there. So, inshallah, the plan is to do this project. Use that to train back for competitions. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Anusha, kind of coming towards the end of the discussion, there's yeah. maybe two or three things I really wanted to ask you. The Go first being, who have been your primary role models throughout your, your life? Um, what lessons have you learned from them, whether they are people you know and have met, or even someone who is more spiritual or someone that's maybe lived in a different era? Uh, but who's been, let's say, the key figures who've taken you uh, with them on a journey of inspiration? Um, I think if you went religiously, then it would be Imam Hussein and his journey, obviously. Um, just the amount of adversity he faced and what he had to do to 
you know, make it to the world as the way it is today, frankly, because it wouldn't have been uh, had he not done his sacrifice. So I think in terms of that digging deep sort of element of it, um, my dad, obviously both my parents, but my dad, (laughs) in terms of sort of... Why why your dad, kind of specifically? um, I think both my parents protected me, but my dad maybe protected me in a different, in a more um, go explore way. Go, right. go find out what makes you, what makes you tick. And, um, and that meant that I had, uh, you know, I have, I, I love both my parents, but you know, like any, like any child, you will have a slightly different relationship with each parent. Um, so I have a loving relationship with my mom and a loving one with my dad, but I, yeah. there's, yeah, as I said, you know, that way of sort of giving that safety net while allowing somebody to go explore is so crucial. Um, mm. it's so crucial. Um, and then I'll have to say both my karate coach and my climbing coach, I think coaches for me have always been the ones who've really believed in my ability to see beyond disability, to take on somebody who has multiple health issues and still not only believe in their potential, but help them believe in themselves when they're doubting themselves. Right. I, I have uh, a couple of questions which I want to ask you in regards to your relationship okay. with the wider community. Now, sure. the first being kind of from a, a perceptional perspective. So being someone who has a disability, someone who was born with um, like the sort of conditions which you have and who now is present in a public sphere, what myths would you say exist within both the Muslim community or the Asian community in the UK as as well as the wider community, which you'd like to address, in terms of disability. Yes, I think, and I think this is a societal thing as in general, but I see it more in our communities, and I mean Asians as a whole, not just Muslims, yeah. and not just like our actual Stanmore community or anybody else. Where I'm just talking generally, mm-hmm. I think people do equate disability being with inability. So that if you're disabled, visibly disabled, that that might mean you're mentally disabled, Mm -hmm. um, that you might have learning disabilities. Um, I've seen that happen a lot. I've seen people be quite surprised that I have a bachelor's and a master's and that I have a job um, or that I'm getting married, inshallah. Um, They're very surprised that I'm living the life of a normal human being. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I feel sad that that surprise is still there in today's day. Why are people surprised that I'm living a normal yeah. life? I mean, it's, take it's, away the climbing and the funky stuff that I get on with. Just the basics. I have a job, I've studied, and I'm getting married. The basics of what we want anybody to achieve, really. So how would you... Uh, that, that, that notion of disability is not inability is obviously really, really important. I think a lot of our, our, our community centres, Muslim mosques and centres around the world... Um, a lot of the time need to be more accessible, I think, to people yes. who, who have disabilities. Um, I have friends who are blind or I have friends who have got uh, like uh, um, impaired with their walking. Um, what sort of messages would you send out to specifically community leaders in regards to access and um, support for people with disabilities? I would say think out of the box and think openly like be really open to suggestions i run a charity for people with disabilities to climb we have to prep for every disability that we can think of 
And I think we need to start doing that in our own communities, in our own mosques, whether that's yeah. people who are mobility reduced or whether that is somebody who looks like she has no disability, invisible disabilities. But that doesn't mean she can't, she, she can't, she can sit on the floor. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean she might need a piece of wall to sit or that she might not be able to eat the food um, coming along because they might have like dietary problems, like inflammatory bowel disease, that they could look perfectly fine. But there's yeah. a lot of judgment associated with not conforming to what is seen as normal. And the problem is people with disabilities can't always do what people see as normal and what is normal. Um, mm. Same, you know, if you know you have somebody visually impaired coming to your mosque or they want to come to your mosque, think about getting, you know, pairing them off with somebody who can guide them into the mosque if they need that. Think about maybe showing them how to get to where they need to get to. Don't assume you know what they need. Ask them what they need. Because sometimes they don't need anything. They just need a little yeah. bit of acceptance. Well, uh, <laughs> I think that's a lot to take in, but definitely it's, 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 I hope it uh, rings to the ears of community leaders, especially. Um, I know it's kind of speaking on Stamos' behalf and to give them some credit, there's been a massive shift, I think, in not just catering for people with disabilities through um, sign language and um, certain um, support services they have, but even for just general wider inclusivity, um, yes. the, the, the community generally over the last, I'd say, 15 years now is is very inclusive of those who are not Koja or those who are not South Asian and are now catering to people who, you know, use English only as a first language. It could be the revert community and people who are literally have no second language. Um, or even people who are young and old and, and providing services for the seniors and the kids. So it's really nice and in some Absolutely. ways it's pretty cute to see. I think, I think yeah, I think every, everywhere that I have seen across everything, mosques to, to general society, people are moving in the yeah. direction we need them to. We just need them to do it more. And, and we need to, like I, what I've seen is a lot of the things that people are doing across the board, it's normally the quick wins, the easy things to do. Um, the things that don't necessarily require a conversation with the disability community. Whereas Absolutely. now it's like actually get people around a table and say, you know, okay, this is what we've done so far. Yeah. What, what's next? What's next? I think my fiance is a revert. He doesn't speak Arabic at the moment. He's trying to learn. Um, he had a brain injury, which means learning Arabic for him is going to be challenging to say the mm -hmm. least. Uh, but he's loving the lectures because Stanmore have got the lectures that, the, especially from Ummi, that are so good because they give him the background he needs to absorb what he needs so we, he can obs observe his fic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you. I think that's that's very kind. Um, the last thing is maybe just to give you a bit of a shout out. Um, I saw on Facebook, um, was it earlier today? That you yes. posted that. Yeah. You, why don't you give us the news? And um and we can celebrate. <laughs> um, so today I was, and well, yesterday even, I was announced on the uh, by the Asian Women Festival um, on their first ever power list. So they've put together a, a list of women, uh, Asian women that they, Southeast Asian women, in fact, um, that they find either influential, breaking barriers, creating change, yeah. um, or just you know generally trying to ch change the way society sees people. Um, and all of us in our own ways and alhamdulillah i know two of those people in person um yeah. and i'm blessed to know them i'm blessed to see the amount of sisterhood that is now forming to see women out there doing this type of stuff it's different it's very different 
just to kind of quote something from your post, you said, onwards and onwards, time to keep having those conversations, to keep challenging stigma and stereotype, to keep talking about equality, equity, access and respect. I think after speaking to you for how long this podcast has been, that you are someone who is a champion of those things and, and long may it continue. Anusha, um, so you've been an absolute pleasure to speak to and thank you so much for joining us on the Thank you. Take care. Love this. Love this.